The NIMBY nuclear propaganda campaign for creating a so-called interim waste storage facility in either New Mexico or West Texas is getting a big public relations push as the solution. And you might fall for it until you hear a genuine expert say... Even the Department of Energy back in 2002 in the Yucca Mountain final environmental impact statement warned that high-level waste at the surface of the planet, if not tended to, will eventually get out from its containers. And that can happen at reactor sites like DOE was talking about. It can also happen at consolidated interim storage sites. Well, when you hear something like that, you start to realize that it's getting really hot in that seat we all share. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a special full-length report on the crisis in what to do with high-level radioactive waste created by nuclear reactors. Currently, over 80,000 tons of the stuff that is deadly for hundreds of thousands of years and more is being created every day. We'll talk with four genuine experts. The first, with an overview on the issues surrounding the proposed high-level so-called interim radioactive waste dumps, is Kevin Camps, nuclear waste specialist for Beyond Nuclear. On Nuclear Hot Seat, we go over the problems of nuclear waste storage quite often. But review for us some of the reasons why the Consolidated Interim Waste Storage Facility in New Mexico is not a good idea. First of all, it's a misnomer. It's a false promise that it's interim. It's likely going to become de facto permanent surface storage which is a really bad idea because even the Department of Energy back in 2002 in the Yucca Mountain final environmental impact statement warned that high-level waste at the surface of the planet, if not tended to, will eventually get out from its containers. And that can happen at reactor sites like DOE was talking about there. It can also happen at consolidated interim storage sites. So that's a worst-case scenario, that loss of institutional control. Over time, this stuff's getting out. And of course, there could be accidents even in the near term where stuff gets out. So I think New Mexico is very hip to the fact that uh, this is not temporary, and they are really standing up at this point. The governor, the state lands commissioner, one of the Native American members of the U.S. House of Representatives, they are all speaking out against this proposal in New Mexico. There are three bills currently coming up for consideration in the House, possibly a vote, all of which deal with nuclear waste policy amendments, spent fuel prioritization, store nuclear fuel act. What would be the result if any or all of these bills pass into law? These are dangerously bad bills. At their heart, they are for opening the yucca dump as quickly as possible and increasing how much waste can be buried there. Therefore, opening these consolidated interim storage sites as quickly as possible, which are currently not legal, by the way. So they'd have to authorize that to happen. 
So what it would mean for most of the country is we all live in New Mexico. We all live in Nevada. We live along these transportation routes by road, by rail, by waterway, and it's everybody's problem. So the mobile Chernobyls, the floating Fukushimas are going to pass through most states, many major cities, and the vast majority of U.S. congressional districts. And the congressional proponents, which include many California Democrats, don't seem to understand that. They only see the upside of the waste eventually leaving after years or decades from a place like California. What they don't see is what it means in terms of the transportation risks. And if Yucca were to open, you're going to be catching a lot of waste from other states in the south coming into California before going to Yucca Mountain, Nevada, because guess what? Yucca's almost on the border with California and would leak massively into the groundwater for one thing, which guess what? Flows into Death Valley, California. So this is very much California's problem and most states in terms of the transportation risks. On June 13, there was a House hearing held. What was it officially supposed to accomplish? Well, it was very bizarre. I mean, this is a Democratic House, right? So you'd think that there'd be more rational discussion. Unfortunately, many Democrats are beholden to the nuclear power industry, whether it's because they have reactors in their district, are getting campaign contributions from nuclear utilities, so the level of discussion is just really alarming. There's so much pro-nuclear talk. There was talk of reprocessing. There's a lot of hypocrisy. Like, for example, Debbie Dingell from Michigan, a Democrat, was like, we got to get the waste out of the Great Lakes. And you know what? I've devoted my life to that very issue. But the thing is, the hypocrisy, she is all for waste being generated in the Great Lakes. She has no problem with the operating reactors. She just wants her cake and she wants to eat it too. She wants operating reactors and she wants the waste out of there. So fortunately we had some champions on the witness panel. We had Jeff Fettis from Natural Resources Defense Council, a longtime watchdog on these issues, who won the million year standard at Yucca Mountain for one thing. Could you explain what that million year standard is? Yeah, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency wanted to cut off regulations at Yucca Mountain after 10,000 years, conveniently just shy of when the radioactivity was going to begin to leak massively, according to the computer modeling. So what Jeff Fettis did on behalf of an environmental coalition, including nuclear information, was to win a lawsuit against the EPA, and the courts told the EPA, you can't do that. You have to look at the long-term hazard, even if it's beyond 10,000 years. It took EPA four years to rewrite its regulations, and when they finally came back out with new regulations, it was a million years of hazard associated with high-level radioactive waste. So they now have to worry about what's going to happen for the next million years at this proposed dump site in Nevada, which is appropriate. It's actually a lowball. There's radioactive poisons that last a lot longer than a million years, but you know what? We'll take it because they were trying to really pull a fast one on the American people before. A million years, and we're just trying to deal with the near term here of what's supposed to be happening with the waste. We'll get back to the hearing in a moment, but why is the nuclear industry pushing so hard, and why is there suddenly this flurry of activity to get either Yucca approved or something in New Mexico approved? Well, I think, truth be told, they would never say it publicly, but the industry knows how dangerous high-level radioactive waste is, and it's on their ledgers still. And they would very much like to offload that liability onto the American public, because then it's not their problem anymore. It's U.S. taxpayers' problem. 
That's always been the push. Publicly, they say everything's safe. They said it in this hearing. Everything's safe. The pools are safe. The dry casks are safe. It's all safe. The transport is safe. And I'll give her some credit. Debbie Dingle raising the issue of the risks of storing this stuff on the shores of the Great Lakes, but you could add the seashores, the riversides, you name the place. I'll give her credit that she recognizes the risk of the waste, but she's got to realize that if the waste is risky, then making it is risky. Let's stop making it. Going back to the hearings, how important or effective are hearings like this? I mean, is Congress really considering information from an oppositional public, or is this just another episode of what I like to call nuclear theater, where there's a lot of posing to cover up a foregone, bought, and paid-for conclusion? There's a lot of truth to what you're saying, but I'll point out that we just had another hearing. That's what's so alarming is they keep pushing these bad new centralized storage, if you're just going to move it again, why would you do that? You're multiplying the transportation risks and you're risking that it's just going to stay there and never leave. And now you've got to worry about it getting out over time at the surface. So the House seems to be taking one tack. Is there a different set of angles being taken on legislation from the Senate? In other words, you have to fight this war, legislatively speaking, on two fronts? Yeah, in the big picture for the past decade, the House Republicans have been most interested in the yucca dump. On the Senate side, yes, Senate Republicans, but also Democrats like Dianne Feinstein, unfortunately, were more interested on the Senate side in consolidated interim storage. What's really frightening to me is there seems to be some movement towards each other at this point, which is really dangerous because that impasse has been the impediment to stopping all of these bad ideas. So as they move closer together, as Shimkus from Illinois in the House opens up to consolidated interim storage, as Alexander from Tennessee, Republican on the Senate side, moves towards the yucca dump, he wants an up or down vote on the Senate floor on the yucca dump this year. That hasn't happened since 2002. So that movement closer together is what really scares me. We're going to have to remain vigilant on all these fronts. What? Can those of us who oppose this nuclear insanity do to support the work that is being done by Beyond Nuclear and NEARS and the other environmental groups? And what can we do on our own to support the work that you're doing? Folks really need to get a hold of their U.S. representative and both of their U.S. senators and say no to all these bad bills, say no to the yucca dump, say no to consolidated interim storage. Say no to the mobile Chernobyls that are an inescapable part of those plans. And say yes, urge your members of Congress to support some wise bills. Like, for example, on the House side, there's the Nevada-sponsored Nuclear Waste Informed Consent Act, which just says a state has to consent to becoming a dump site for radioactive waste. It's a very common-sense position, but Nevada's been excluded from that consent-based siting for, you know, 30-plus years. So that's a good bill on the House side. On the Senate side, there's a good bill called the Stranded Act. It's an acronym for Sensible, Timely Relief for America's Nuclear District's Economic Development Act. There's this, <laughs> there's this talk, who, isn't it, who, who, who comes up with these? Yeah, I guess it's how they you know, have fun up on the Hill. But that term stranded refers to what they also call orphaned waste. These are shutdown reactors. Some of them are supposedly completely decommissioned, never mind the lingering contamination, never mind the high-level waste that's there. 
What they're referring to is the waste is stuck at a place like Zion, Illinois. One of the co-sponsors is uh, Senator Duckworth from Illinois. Another sponsor is Susan Collins from Maine. You've got Maine Yankee with its stranded waste, so-called. And what the bill would do is modestly compensate to the tune of something like $15 million per year these communities like Zion, Illinois, that can't develop the lakeshore, the golden coast of Lake Michigan, because this high-level waste is there. And they are suffering economically because they're stuck with this waste. The way I see it is that is appropriate. And it would take some of the pressure off of just get it out of here. We don't care where it goes. We don't care how it gets there. And that's why we're supportive of the Stranded Act. In terms of the states having any power at all to determine their own nuclear future, the Supreme Court just ruled that Virginia has the right to continue to block uranium mining in that state, which was seen as a major victory. Does that in any way give power to Nevada and New Mexico in their fight back against becoming the de facto nuclear waste dumps for the country? I think so. You know, it is strange bedfellow stuff, all the states' rights, but, you know, I'm fully supportive of states protecting their citizens and their residents and their environment from these nuclear threats, whether it's uranium mining in Virginia, high-level radioactive waste dumping in Nevada, high-level radioactive waste dumping in New Mexico, it's responsible for states to stand up and protect their people against, you know, being screwed. I mean, the name of the bill in 1987 that singled out Yucca Mountain, Nevada, Western Shoshone Indian land for this high-level radioactive waste dump is the Nuclear Waste Policy Amendments Act, but it's most commonly referred to as the Screw Nevada Bill. And Nevada is calling this current round of legislation that's trying to screw it again just that. They're calling it Screw Nevada too. I just vacationed in Nevada, and everyone I spoke to there is dead set against Yucca Mountain. And I wasn't around any activists. This was just people I would run into at a farmer's market or as we were thrift shopping or going around like that. And it seems that virtually the entire state is against Yucca Mountain. It seems ridiculous and inappropriate that the voices of the people are not being listened to. You know what a part of it is, is Nevada suffered immensely under nuclear weapons testing. A lot of people died from cancer downwind of the Nevada test site from the 1950s to the present. And they have taken one for the team, and they're not willing to take another one for the team. And the same thing can be said of New Mexico. The waste isolation pilot plant for military plutonium waste burial is in southeastern New Mexico. So here comes the nuclear industry again, breaking its promise to New Mexico, if you'll take the military plutonium, we won't ask anything more of you. Well, they're asking something more of New Mexico to take all of the high-level radioactive waste in the country and park it on the surface. <laughs> so the broken promises, the exploitation, the environmental injustice, the radioactive racism, that's why these long memories in places like Nevada and New Mexico are coming to the fore at this point. People are just saying, no, we do not consent. You won't do this to us again. What's next in terms of the fight against these bills? Well, we have a hearing coming up in Midland, Texas. That is an NRC licensing proceeding. But the thing is, as we defend ourselves on Capitol Hill, we also have to defend ourselves on the executive branch side of things. So we're fighting all these battles at the same time. We're trying to stop these licensings in Texas and New Mexico for consolidated interim storage. 
if we lose and we will before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, it's a rubber stamp, then we take it to the federal courts. We will appeal the NRC's rubber stamp to the federal courts and all at the same time defending ourselves on Capitol Hill where the illegality of consolidated interim storage currently, and it is illegal, it's clearly illegal. Holtec's top lawyer even admitted that in the kangaroo court proceeding in Albuquerque last January. The thing is, he said to the three licensing board judges, you know what, your honors, laws can be changed. As we speak, the Holtec lobbyists, the waste control specialist lobbyists are on the Hill trying to get this legislation passed that would make legal their dangerous idea for consolidated storage. So we're fighting all these battles in all three branches of government simultaneously. It sounds exhausting, and my hat's off to you and the others who are battling this at the high level. Anything that Nuclear Hot Seat can do or the listeners to this program can do, please keep us informed and let us know so that we can engage in the further battle. Great. Well, you know, there's congressional recess coming up. Uh, Members of Congress, senators and representatives are going back home to in-district, and so I encourage people get together with your friends, your allies, and demand a face-to-face meeting with your members of Congress. They work for you. You pay their salary. And just tell them what you think about these bad ideas. And we can overtake the influence of the nuclear power lobby in that way. They live in fear of their constituents finding out about this stuff and holding them accountable. So that's our challenge is to rise to the occasion. Sounds like a great way to spend the congressional recess. Hey, get to know your government. (laughs) That was Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear. To get a clearer view of what legal issues are involved and how the laws are in the process of being manipulated by the nuclear industry, we spoke with Diane DiRigo, Radioactive Waste Project Director for Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NEARS. We've been discussing the problems with the proposed consolidated interim storage space being built in New Mexico. And there are legal issues involved with this. And the question is, who's got the law on their side with this? So with the nuclear industry pushing so hard to get this dump cited, what if any laws support them in this or contradict them on this? The Nuclear Waste Policy Act that is now the law of the land in the U.S., it's the 1982 Nuclear Waste Policy Act passed, and in 1987, the amendments passed. So under that law, it is not legal to have centralized interim storage. What happened in 1987 when the Amendments Act was passing is that there was a nuclear waste negotiator set up to spend about three years looking for a volunteer. The primary target was Indian tribes, Indian nations, and the other opportunities were for the public, anybody whose community or county or state or whatever wanted to volunteer. Uh, The nuclear waste negotiator was set up under the 1987 Nuclear Waste Policy Amendments Act to find places that wanted nuclear waste dumps. The negotiator was given money to give to anybody who was interested, and then they would get to the next step of finding out more. So it was a process. During the three years from 87 to 90 that the negotiations and the energy looking for volunteers took place, 
There were some tribes that considered being interim storage sites for high-level waste. One was at Prairie Island. They didn't go as far as the Mescalero Apache. The Prairie Island Nation is in the headwaters of the Mississippi River up in Minnesota. And that's where the nuclear reactors are up in Prairie Island. There's two units right on Indian land, right next to the school. And the high-level waste is building up right on that island. It's absolutely not a place for it to be. But they were looking at the possibility of using adjacent land to the river to being a centralized interim storage site at the time. The term was monitored retrievable storage, or MRS, but it meant the same thing, a supposedly temporary place to bring high-level nuclear waste. The Mescalero Apache Nation, which is uh, in New Mexico, they also considered, and they went much further into the consideration process, but in the end, both of them and anyone else that had considered said, no, no thanks, we've checked it out and we're not going to do it. So the way that the law had been written is that the centralized interim storage or MRS site would be a site that would be temporary, but it could never open until a permanent repository was already operating. So without a permanent repository operating, any interim storage site is illegal because of the clear and present danger that it would become de facto the permanent dump without meeting any permitting criteria. So the Nuclear Waste Policy Act for that three-year window was allowing for consideration of temporary storage, but once that time period ended and there wasn't anyone, that whole type of dump is not even legal under federal law. Even if it was, it would only be legal if there was a permanent repository operating before it could operate. So it's illegal under current law for there to be an interim waste storage site without a permanent one, which of course they're all referring to yucca and... Well, no, no, no. I mean, it doesn't have to be yucca. It's any permanent repository. I think that's an important distinction, is that Yucca Mountain is a proposed permanent dump, which is not going to ever operate as a permanent dump for a variety of reasons, environmental and technical criteria, political violation of environmental justice, and violation of the sovereignty of the Western Shoshone people. So the Yucca Mountain site should be disqualified, and it's not. And I, I really resist the use of the term Yucca Mountain as a placeholder for a permanent repository because it's not. It's what's targeted as a permanent repository, but I think it's really important for us if people want to consider a permanent repository, if Yucca's off the table, then someone could maybe consider such a facility. And there's pros and cons to that. But Yucca should in no way be considered the permanent repository. Then why this push? What in our laws, supports or at least allows for the current push in New Mexico for this consolidated interim, supposedly interim storage site? There's not a legal basis for it. And both of the companies that have put in applications to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission have in clear and then unclear terms admitted that they're expecting that there be a change in the law before they're able to operate. Another confounding factor for proposed interim sites is that both operators, WCS, both proposed operators, the waste control specialists 
or Interim Storage Partners, which is its larger consortium name, in Andrews, Texas, Andrews County, Texas, and Holtec, which is the company working with the Eddie Lee Energy Alliance in New Mexico, near Carlsbad, in Lee County. Those two companies that have applied to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission for licenses are really violating the law, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is violating the law by processing those applications. What they are banking on, probably all of them, is that Congress will change the law. They're banking on communities with more and more reactors closing and not wanting to be permanent sites for the nuclear waste that were generated in their areas, that they want to get it out anywhere. They don't really care where, as long as it's out of there, and that they will change the laws. And so that's why we have in Congress now a variety of bills in the House and Senate that would legalize centralized interim storage and would push harder for uh, licensing of, of Yucca Mountain. So it sounds like the companies have put in a preemptive strike under the assumption that the laws are going to be changed. What, if anything, can be done by those of us who oppose this policy change to do a preemptive strike to make certain that the law does not get changed? Make sure that your Congress members and your senators, your one Congress member and both senators, know that you are opposed to, in the House, S-2699, in the Senate, it's just a discussion draft in the Environment Committee. In the Energy Committee, there's a bill, S-1234, that would um, legalize centralized storage and does have support for Yucca in there. So it's S-1234 and a discussion draft in the Senate. It's in the House, H.R. 2699. There's also H.R. 3136, which is sponsored by Congresswoman Matsui, who has the closed Senate uh, reactor and nuclear power reactor in Sacramento in her district, Rancho Seco. It's been closed for decades. And her bill would legalize centralized interim storage. And so it would change the existing law to make it legal to have the at least a pilot plan, if not a whole hog, centralized interim storage site for waste to go supposedly interimly. The other provision in federal law that exists now is that the utility companies and the merchant owners of nuclear power reactors are expecting to turn over their high-level waste, the irradiated fuel at every reactor, spent as it's called, irradiated fuel to the Department of Energy, and the law says that at the time that it goes to a permanent repository, that's when the Department of Energy, i.e. the U.S. taxpayers, take title and liability to the waste. In the meantime, that waste is sitting at the reactor sites, and even if it went to a centralized consolidated interim site, the title under current law, not that such a site is legal, but the title of the waste would not transfer to the federal government. So waste, at least in theory, would move from private ownership at the reactor site to private ownership at the centralized or consolidated site. And we actually already have a licensed centralized storage facility in Utah, private fuel storage, PFS, was licensed 
by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, but one of the reasons it's never operated is that no utility or merchant owner of waste wanted to send it away and still have title and liability to it. So these sites are not going to work, these two that are proposed now, unless the law changes and allows for title and liability to the waste to shift to the taxpayers when they move. So that's one of the things that would happen with some of these bills so that these companies would not actually have liability and ownership. They would just be, as it's been called, a parking lot or a consolidated dump. And we would, in the meantime, for the next 20, 40, 50 years, we would have high-level nuclear waste moving on our roads, rails, and waterways across this country. And 87% of the congressional districts would have nuclear waste going through for many years and and any number of decades, depending how long it took. It could go by road, it could go by rail, it could go by, by barge. We're looking at the Great Lakes, we're looking at coastal areas in California and just wherever reactors are, Chesapeake Bay, up in New England. So the waterways are also threatened because the casks, as you've probably covered on other shows, are not designed to withstand the real road, rail, and water conditions that are out there. They've got criteria for the containers to be certified, but those requirements, the certification requirements, are less than could be experienced on real roads, rails, and waterways. So in other words, we've been making this radioactive waste for decades now. It's piled up all around the country. Everybody's playing the game of NIMBY. They don't want it in their backyard, but there's nobody else's backyard to get it to. So they're trying to target a poor area where it's sparsely populated and they think that by offering jobs and money, they can play sleight of hand and get people to go, ooh, let's get money for jobs and not look at the long-term implications of what they're going to be stuck with. Would that be accurate? Generally, the Permian Basin, uh, where both of these sites now are targeted, that is uh, oil country, oil fracking, um, and it's a boom and bust economy. So sometimes people are doing great and other times it's pretty tough. Um, and they're varying. It's a community that um, the people that would be most exposed uh, really don't have the resources to fight it. Diane DiRigo, Radioactive Waste Project Director for Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NEARS. We'll continue this Nuclear Hot Seat special on the radioactive waste crisis with on-the-ground reports from New Mexico and West Texas. We'll do that in just a moment, but first... So many nuclear issues, so little time, and yes, it's always best to get on-the-ground coverage of what's happening. That's why next week, I will be traveling to Navajo Nation in New Mexico to cover the 40th anniversary of the Church Rock uranium mining disaster. That spilled 94 million gallons of radioactive waste into the Puerco River, which then flowed more than 80 miles downstream, contaminating water, land, and people, and it has never been cleaned up. 
That the accident took place on Navajo Nation land contributed to the environmental racism that has hidden this nuclear disaster from view. To use this program to make Church Rock visible internationally and give voice to those directly involved in it. This is what Nuclear Hot Seat does. Goes to the front lines to bring you back the nuclear news that you won't get anywhere else. But here's the problem. When I do travel for a story... It takes funds over and above what I use to run the weekly program. That's why I'm reaching out with a special request for donations to help me cover all my expenses for this important journey. Yes, I am asking for your assistance. Yes, yours. Any amount will help. You can send a one-time donation of any size by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking on the big red Donate button. There's also a big green Donate button, that allows you to quickly set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month for ongoing support of the show. Know that whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. And when I'm in Church Rock, bearing witness and bringing back the story, you will be with me every step of the way. Now back to this week's special on the radioactive waste crisis. To learn what the activism looks like in New Mexico, I talked with Leona Morgan, a Diné woman who has spent her life fighting uranium mining, waste hauling, and nuclear waste dumping. What has been your involvement with the community response to the proposed consolidated so-called interim waste storage facility in New Mexico? In New Mexico, there are many organizations that have been addressing the nuclear beast, as we like to call it. We consider ourselves to be in the belly of that nuclear beast in New Mexico with the Manhattan Project, uranium mining, and now we're dealing with more weapons thanks to Obama and these two things that we call interim storage. And one is in New Mexico, which is the Holtec International proposal to store more than double the amount of waste that exists today. And then just over the state line in Texas, across from Eunice, New Mexico, is the waste control specialist site. And in order for waste to be delivered to WCS, if it goes there, it will still have to go through New Mexico. So people in New Mexico are very aware that both sites will have impacts to our state. Of course, the transport will affect everyone nationally, but in New Mexico, these organizations that I mentioned There's many who have been fighting for a long time, many who were involved with the whip fight and other other nuclear facilities in the state. We are coming together, working to address both of these so-called interim dumps. We have a pretty well-rounded group of folks. Um, Like I said, there's some folks who were around when the whip proposal was going through. And then we have our group, which is called the Nuclear Issues Study Group based in Albuquerque, that is a new organization, only three years old, that is also getting involved. Together, we have been actively communicating with each other and doing as much as we can to not just educate the public, but to build resistance. What sort of steps have you been taking? On the ground in New Mexico, these organizations have been working to build resistance by getting resolutions from various municipalities, counties, and whatever entities that are going to have a stake in this fight 
we're getting resolutions passed to oppose it. In 2016, the state already approved two state memorials that support this project. And this was signed by both the House and the, the Senate of New Mexico, the state legislature. And this happened mostly because people were not aware that there was this threat. And the legislators who signed it, one of them told me personally, yes, I did sign it and I didn't know what it was. So he was a little bit embarrassed. In 2018, our groups were working to get the legislators from the state of New Mexico to oppose this. And at the time, we probably could have gone for a memorial to fight it, but it was very difficult because even our own state lawmakers were not very aware of the technical details, the timeline, and the dangers of these two projects. And so, of course, the selling point is always coming from the industry and the proponents like, oh, it's going to create jobs and it's going to be great for your state. Those ideas of benefits were at the time a little bit louder than what we all know are the everlasting, eternal, negative aspects of any kind of nuclear facility once it comes to your community. So today, we are very happy that we can say our governor now publicly opposes this project. Our state land commissioner also just sent a letter out publicly opposing it. And our congresswoman, our representative, Deborah Holland, also came out very strongly against this project. So within this last month, We've had a lot of public officials coming out opposing it very publicly and, and demanding that the NRC address the safety issues and also bringing into question a lot of the unknown dangers and asking the questions that were not asked previously in the previous administration when our former governor sold us out. And so it really started, I think, with our former governor and her support and her collusion with industry. So now we're having to work to not just educate, but we're basically doing our own type of cleanup, I guess, of the situation because it created a big mess across the state. It flew so fast under the radar and people didn't know about it. And that's how it's designed, you know, by the company and by the nuclear industry. They work in secrecy. So now, for us to uncover and expose all of this, it's taken a couple of years, but our group alone, I noticed a huge change because last year we were doing outreach to the public. We were going to farmers markets, we were going to flea markets, we were going to as many public events as we could, handing out flyers, getting people to sign letters. Well, we got 5,000 letters from individuals in New Mexico who signed a piece of paper that we then mailed to the NRC. Some of them we hand-delivered when they were doing their scoping of the, the beginning part of their NEPA process. So during the scoping period, our group alone, we got 5,170 letters. And out of those 5,000 letters, if we calculated who did we actually speak to, I'm sure we spoke to at least 10 to 15,000 people individually doing that one-on-one -on -one education to the public as volunteers. However, the NRC, they came back and they said, oh, we got 6,000 letters nationally. 
when all of the national groups were doing these type of letters, they counted a lot of them as form letters. And we know we had at least maybe 30,000. So in New Mexico and across the country, there were tens of thousands of letters opposing Holtec, but the NRC minimized that number. And we know, we know we did the hard work. We know we went out and we went to the communities. We did presentations. Myself and some others went to the Navajo Nation. And there's also a resolution from the Navajo Nation, what's called the Diné Uranium Remediation Advisory Commission. They also signed a resolution opposing Holtec and the transport, as well as WCS, which is on the Texas side. And we have one resolution from a Navajo Nation chapter, which is the smaller governance of the Navajo Nation. Right now, there's also some education that's being done within the Pueblo government structure. There's 20 Pueblos in New Mexico, which are also their own indigenous nation, but they also have their own system, how they operate together. And so they're becoming aware of the issue. And in Arizona, we, we also started to talk about the transport issue because with the fight that I'm also a part of, the indigenous fight called Hall No, there we're fighting the transport of uranium from the Grand Canyon to the uranium mill in Utah. And that issue alone was about transport. And so that opened the door for us to educate people that, okay, uranium is a dangerous type of transport, but high-level radioactive waste is also a very, very, maybe, I would say, even more dangerous risk than uranium ore. So yeah, we've most of the on-the-ground stuff has been education, outreach, and now people are beginning to act by getting formal opposition in, from their communities. So this, this has been great. This work will continue. Obviously, this, we have a lot more to do. We're going to have to step it up, and so folks should be seeing a lot more action coming in the next couple of years. It's clear that your group has been active in the best hands-on way in terms of one-on-one -on -one and to small group communication because that has been proven time and again to be the best way to communicate difficult, dangerous issues that people would rather not pay attention to. What are the next steps? that you see for yourself as an individual and for the groups that you are working with? Obviously, when you escalate your response to something, people start to do more direct action, more mobilization. That would just naturally be something that would happen as the fight is getting bigger. I can't comment on any of those. And even if we did have a lot of those types of interventions planned. I would not comment <laughs> because <laughs> that's not something you, you, do, you share publicly. But for the most part, the smaller building blocks that are happening now, there will be an incremental increase in how people will respond. And I think the organic process of non-activists, because right now it's mostly our groups, like I said, people who are already involved in the fight. But once it starts to reach the general public, I think we'll see some type of organic growth of the movement. And my dream is to see it become a New Mexico issue for everyone who lives here in, in the same way that everyone in New Mexico, you know, we, we love green chili. You know, I think it would become synonymous with something like that, that people know New Mexico is very much a nuclear state. And that's not something we embrace. We embrace our green chili. We love our green chili. But I think on the opposite end of the spectrum, 
this is something every New Mexican needs to know for the sake of their personal safety and the safety of our environment and our, our future generations. Leona Morgan of the Diné people fighting against the nuclear beast. Finally, there is a site under serious pressure to host a high-level nuclear waste dump in West Texas. To learn more, we spoke with Karen Haddon of the Sustainable Energy and Economic Development, or SEED, coalition. We have been discussing the proposed high-level so-called interim radioactive waste dump being proposed for New Mexico. But there is also a proposed site for one in West Texas. Give us a little background on that site and what is being proposed. There is a company called Waste Control Specialists. They go by WCS, and they are trying to do uh, consolidated interim storage, bringing radioactive waste, the high-level radioactive waste, from around the country to Texas. They would store it above ground in dry cask storage in West Texas in the county of Andrews, right near the New Mexico border. And they want to bring 40,000 tons for starters of this high-level radioactive waste. We anticipate that they would ask for more later. So this could potentially be um, the nuclear reactor waste from around the whole country. What is different, if there is any difference, between what's happening in West Texas and what's happening in New Mexico? Procedurally, there are a lot of similarities. The sites would be a little bit different. In New Mexico, the waste would be slightly below the ground. In Texas, it's totally above the surface. New Mexico is asking for more for starters. I think Texas certainly would ask for more over time. More what? More of the radioactive waste. Texas would certainly be wanting to extend their volumes over time. The way that WCS operates is typically like the camel's nose under the tent. They start with requesting one amount on an application, but certainly they plan to expand and would want to take more and more high-level radioactive waste over time. Now, are these two sites in competition with each other? Are they working parallel with each other? What relationship, if any, is there between them? The two sites are in competition with each other, but at the same time, there is nothing that would prevent both sites from operating. So we don't know what will happen. The judges, in my own opinion, may be likely to issue the license applications, but that doesn't mean that the sites will get built, and certainly there is a lot of opposition in both states. It sounds like they're engaged in a race to the bottom. Legally speaking, where does this stand now? Right now, we're in the process of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission considering the license applications There has been an oral hearing by the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board judges in New Mexico, and we're about to have the one in Texas by the same three Atomic Safety and Licensing Board judges, and that will be in Midland on July 10th. And we're inviting people to come out and join us for that. At this hearing, 
will there be a chance for the public and for concerned organizations such as Seed Coalition to be making presentations? Seed Coalition will be represented by attorney Terry Lodge, who is representing about eight different organizations, Public Citizen and others. But we will not be able to speak as individuals. We are hoping that some of the public officials who are opposed to the plan for high-level radioactive waste storage, we hope that they can get a chance to speak, and we're waiting to find out if that's going to be able to occur. You know, I often refer to any kind of hearings that take place or here in Southern California, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission community enragement panels as opposed to engagement <laughs> panels, which is what they call them. But it strikes me that in keeping with Shakespeare's line, all the world is a stage, if so, nuclear is some of the worst theater out there. And especially when they stage it so completely that it excludes the very comments that need to be made, need to be aired, and need to be made public. What is the best possible outcome from this kind of hearing, and what is the most likely immediate outcome of it? The best outcome would be that the 50 contentions that have been raised would be taken seriously. There are scientifically valid concerns that have been raised about the water quality and the impacts on the water, the risk of contamination, the risks of transportation, the inappropriate geology, and in the case of uh, WCS, the close proximity of the Ogallala Aquifer. These scientific concerns and health and safety concerns should be taken seriously, and it would be great if these issues were accepted and heard and fully discussed and vetted with experts. We don't think the judges are leaning that way so far based on what we've seen in New Mexico, where they admitted um, the several organizations as parties, but they didn't accept any of the issues, meaning basically there's no case. And that leaves it where we have to go into the regular courts for appeal, especially if and when the Nuclear Regulatory Commission does issue these licenses. What position, if any, has the governor of Texas or the representatives in the area taken on this proposed high-level storage facility? Traditionally, the local community has been supportive of WCS. Why is that? That is because there is economic interest. And when I say supportive, that's only the officials. The people on the street are opposed, especially when they figure out what's actually happening. But the county commissioners there were wanting to get income from the fees off of this site, and therefore they have been supportive from the low level and on up. We're seeing a change, though. We're seeing a shift in what's happening. We're seeing some of the conservative uh, representatives from West Texas speaking out against the high-level waste. They realize that this is a threat to the local community and to some of the businesses, including the oil industry. And one of the oil companies has been speaking up, um, Faskin Oil, and pulling together a coalition of other oil and ranchers. So this is changing things dramatically to where there is now significant 
opposition, even in West Texas and even among conservatives. In terms of the governor, Governor Abbott has never had a full out statement that he opposes high level radioactive waste. He's been silent. And this is a lot better than our former governor, Rick Perry, who was a big supporter of importing high level radioactive waste. And he is now heading up the US Department of Energy. So there has been improvement. We saw some good moves out of the governor this session. There were several bad bills that would help waste control specialists bring in more waste through decommissioning and they would not have to pay the state the fees involved if these bills passed. These got blocked in both the House and the Senate and it was a bipartisan effort to keep those bills bottled up. At the last minute, we had a House representative who snuck an amendment onto a domestic violence bill, completely unrelated bill. And the amendment never used the word radioactive, and he never said the word radioactive or waste while he was presenting this amendment. He referred to it briefly as, oh, some economic incentives. And then he moved passage of this bill, which had been widely supported. No one really seemed to know what was happening. And all of a sudden, this good bill had the bad radioactive waste amendment on it. It was pretty much the equivalent of the bills that had been blocked all session. This was very last minute on the third reading of a bill. So no one was able to pull that off. And it went to the governor with this bad amendment on it. And he uh, actually vetoed the bill, a good bill, and he regretted having to do it. He said, it's a good bill on domestic violence, you know, sorry, but we can't have this bad radioactive waste amendment on it. So that was a great move on behalf of the governor. We were happy to see it. And it's a very much of a shift from how things have gone in the Texas legislature over most of the years. For quite a few years now, every single time, every single session, WCS comes in and wants something more, an expansion, a loosening of rules and regulations, and typically they've gotten everything they've wanted. So this was a big change. We were happy to see it. Congratulations on that one. Too bad for the abused women, for the domestic violence victims. Absolutely. That was a major loss, and we were sad about that too. And... um, Certainly, we were appalled that the House member, uh, a Democrat out of Eagle Pass, had done such a sneaky maneuver and a a bad move. I want to revisit what you said about oil companies now being on the alert and coming up to oppose what WCS wants to do. What is the thinking behind oil companies looking at a nuclear waste dump and going, "Uh uh-uh, we don't want that here? There's a growing recognition among oil companies, and not all of them are in agreement, but quite a few are on this page. They are concerned that the water could become contaminated, and they need the water. They're doing a lot of fracking. They're concerned that the oil itself could become contaminated. And the area in West Texas is a major oil-producing region, the Permian Basin, and it is producing at very, very high record rates right now. 
And certainly there are quite a few companies and ranchers and royalty owners who are very concerned that there could be multi-billion dollar losses if something, anything went wrong. And even the perception of contamination could definitely harm the industry. In addition, they don't want their workers and families to have this high-level radioactive waste in the region. And often they cite the International Atomic Energy Agency policy as that it shouldn't be in an, in an area where there is oil production and have said, that's exactly right. This is not the right place for this. Where does it go from here? Is this all a time of preparation for the July 10 hearing? Or is there a further site that you have your eyes set on where the work is going to have to go? We certainly are putting a lot of energy in right now on getting um, the public to be aware of this hearing, to get people to come out and join us, to wear red to symbolize that we want it stopped. And we're doing media outreach and we're doing Facebook notices and we're trying our best to let people know what's going on and about the opportunity to participate. After this, we're going to continue to focus on getting additional communities to file resolutions in opposition to consolidated interim storage and to having this dangerous high-level waste come through their communities. We've had a number of communities, a total of eight cities and counties in Texas so far, have passed these resolutions, and they've been major cities like Dallas, San Antonio, El Paso, Midland, the Midland Chamber of Commerce, and even Midland City Council. So we're seeing increasing opposition, and we're going to keep that ball rolling and get more cities and counties to sign on, and also legislators to write letters to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to explain why we have such serious, serious concerns. And you know, for the local people, for them, most communities, you know, they have fought incredibly hard when there's one or two nuclear reactors put in their backyard. Historically, there have been huge, huge fights. But for the local community in Andrews and in Eunice, New Mexico, which is five miles from the site, this means the equivalent of as many as 100 nuclear reactors, the waste coming from many, many nuclear reactors, all in their backyard. And this doesn't make sense in terms of safety and health, and it certainly isn't right for the communities that get dumped on. Karen Hatton of Seed Coalition. Final thought? If we need an interim repository for high-level nuclear waste, I suggest the basement of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Holtec CEO Chris Singh's jacuzzi, Steve Forbes' swimming pool, and up Michael the Schillberger Schellenberger's Well, it's an anatomical reference and too rude for broadcast, so use your imagination. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 2nd, 2019. Just remember, we are all in the nuclear hot seat.